Hi, and welcome to another episode of Our Memphis History, which in this case we probably should retitle Our Germantown History, as we're going to be talking to three ex-firefighters from the Germantown Fire Department. Our own Joe Lowry is going to curate this one for us and talk to the roundtable of firefighters that we have here. I think you're going to enjoy this one. There's some great stories and how the fire department got started, how it used to be volunteer, and where it is now, and the innovations that they brought to the table out in that in that point, a very small community, but uh, had a lot of locations and a lot of area to cover. So let's listen in. We have uh, gathered uh, a very interesting group of people together tonight to do a, a podcast on the history of the Germantown Fire Department. Uh, I spent from 1975 to 1994 out here, and I still do reserve time on the emergency management side. Uh, I'm going to go around the room, and Chief Jones, retired battalion chief, he's going to introduce himself, John O'Brien, who's been on here forever, and Joey Abel, who was, who was, was here back in the 60s and early 70s. So go ahead, Alan, introduce yourself, and then John. Okay, my name is Alan Jones. Uh, I retired uh, from the Germantown Fire Department last July, or July a year ago. Uh, 42 year service, uh, fire battalion chief uh, over shift operations, and uh, it was a great career. Okay, uh, John O'Brien uh, retired in 2007 as a lieutenant. I uh, joined early in uh, uh, in the high school program, I was 15 uh, in November of 1971 and uh, just rose through the ranks. I was uh, honored to serve as chief for a couple of years. Thank you. Uh, Joey Abel, I was a teenage volunteer fireman back in the day, starting when I was supposed to be 16, more than likely 15 in the high school area. So uh, here I am. During this period of time, we had 15 and 16 year olds, actually 16 year old and 17 year old young men going into burning houses and coming back out, we never got one hurt, and driving $200,000 pieces of fire equipment at age 16. And when we tell people that, they go, what? How can you do that? Well, in 19, prior to 1947, there was no fire department at all in Germantown, and if there was a fire, uh, Germantown, the city would call for Memphis and Engine 18 would respond from Southern and Ellsworth and actually had come out here before and fought fires, but most of the fires went to the ground because there was no water system and they couldn't get to water to fight the fire. In 1947, the Cordova powder plant closed down. The Cordova powder plant during World War II, which was at Macon and Berry Hill, was actually making bombs, aerial flares, and projectiles, pyrotechnic projectiles for the, for the war. Uh, they had a fire engine up there, a, a 42 American La France, 750-gallon uh, pump, 300-gallon tank, fully equipped, 1,200 feet of hose, all the ladders, everything you needed. The city of Germantown purchased that for $5,000. I can't tell you what $5,000 was in 1947 but it was a state-of-the-art fire engine 12-cylinder thing would fly. 
I don't know if y'all have ever ridden tailboard on the back of it, but I have, and it, it, you better hang on or you're going to die. Yep. That's how fast this thing was. And they kept this around, and, and the, the people on the fire department here, and there's quite a nice list of, of the citizens that were out here. They were all majors, players, citizens in, in the city of Germantown. Uh, and there's pictures of all the different guys hanging around, and they called it Red Devil Number One. In fact, they even painted the Red Devil Number One on the front for the Germantown Red Devil, which was the high school. In 1955 or 56, Hugh Ford, who was the public works director, got with several of the members, and they bought what what size was that, John? They bought about a three or four ton Ford chassis. They put a 500-gallon-a-minute Barton American pump on the front. Yeah, they went to Newberry Tank Service, which was a tank building company in Memphis, and they put an 850-gallon tank of water. Now, we all know that you can fight a lot of fire with 800 gallons of water. My whole time out here, I never had a pumper that had over 500 gallons of water, ever. We know what we could do with 500. And so they would use this particular vehicle when they ran outside the city of Germantown, and they covered a very large area. They went all the way to Capable on the south. They went all the way to to, to Cairoville, uh, on the east. They went all the way to the interstate, where the interstate is on the west, and all the way up to north of Raleigh Lagrange Morality Road. Big area, huge area. Um, fire department started to progress as the city started to grow, and at that point, uh, John, I want you to. Or I want I tell you, Joey. I want you to talk about the early days because you were there, and and you're a little bit older than most of us, yeah. except me. <coughs> I left my saber tooth tiger out front when I got here. Okay, uh, we uh, my my parents moved here in '62, Germantown. I was in the middle of the seventh grade. Those of you not good at math, I'll be 73 next month. Uh, and I came out here, and this was like moving to Mayberry RFD. There was one traffic light, there was one police car, there were two police officers, and there was some kind of fire department, volunteer fire department. Um, in the 40s and in the 50s, the Memphis buses, some of them were electric and they had the little things on top of the buses like the trolleys do downtown. When we moved out here, those were long gone, but the tro those trolley wires came out Poplar Avenue and went up to old Poplar Pike went back. They were still there for a couple of more years before they finally got taken down. Um, <clears throat> yep, uh, we moved from uh, someplace called East Memphis Colonial Lakers. Had to break up with my girlfriend because we moved so far away to Germantown. I couldn't drive in the seventh grade, so she and I were done. Um, <laughs> uh, ha having been in the Boy Scouts and Methodist Church, my family joined the Germantown Methodist Church. And I'm saying all that because when I, when I was 15, we had an MYF picnic one Saturday. That's Methodist Youth Fellowship Teenagers. And uh, the Reiner's house down on McVeigh Road, they had a pond, they had a barn, they had some horses, and of course there were some girls there. And we were all down there at our appointed time. And uh, we'd been there a little while, and all of a sudden this god-awful siren went off in the background, and there were some older boys there. There was Asa Hoke, Tom Wright, uh, do -do -do -do. Daryl Reiners, and they all started saying, come on, Joey, come on, we gotta go fire. I said, oh, what? We gotta go to fire. I said, shut up, get in the car, okay? So I got in the car, we go to the fire station, and they say, it's a grass fire down at Barber Road in Germantown. 
and they had a couple of World War II Jeeps. 122 was there, 123 was there, 121 was brand new. And I got in one of the Jeeps with Asa. We went down there and fought a grass fire and I was just, I was hooked, okay, I was there, all right. And uh, a few months later when I turned 16, I got into the volunteer fire department program, high school teenager. And Phil McCall was the man that was the spark plug for the whole thing. And I left out one small thing, and that is when I joined the fire department, I did not join Germantown Volunteer Fire Department. I joined Germantown Junior Volunteer Fire Department because all the men were at work in Memphis in the daytime. They needed fire personnel, and that's how they started the juniors. But within three, and Otto Lines was the chief of the juniors. But within about three months, they dissolved the juniors. It all became one big thing because we were out doing the adults. The adults were petering out or dying, whatever they were doing. So the juniors went away. But uh, that, that is what started me down this uh, wicked little path. And uh, the city acquired a Bronco about that time, brand new Bronco, and the two World War II Jeeps went away. But I gotta say a word or two about them before we go. Um, a red one and a white one, army surplus. Each one had, a, I believe, about a 50-gallon tank on the back, little gasoline motor to crank it up with. One of them had all the right gears, and one of them had the good brakes, but neither one of them had both, okay? But, <laughs> but they were okay. They did the job, but they, they went away. Uh, 121 was the new pumper, city limits only, don't get off the hard road, blah, blah, blah. 123 was what I called the workhorse of the crowd. That was the one we talked about with the 500, 750-gallon pump on the front end of it, 500-gallon pump, and uh, 850 gallons of water, which could slosh pretty viciously at the wrong time. Uh, that, that, ve that vehicle also had a funny tailboard. It had a split tailboard, one person on each side of it, and there was a cabinet in the middle. And in that cabinet were about six turnout gears, helmet, boots, turnout coat. We never heard of air bottles. They didn't exist back in that point. Now, this is a logistic issue because that was in the back of 123. So if you had a fire in the city that 121 went to and 123 didn't go to it, there was no turnout here. So there were, we had to do what we had to do with what we had to do with. Phil McCall taught us early on. You know, we ain't Memphis Fire Department. We don't have three more pumpers and two trucks coming to help us out. We're going to take care of what we're going to take care of, and we're going to get it done. And as you mentioned, the territory, uh, the city limits of Memphis was basically 240, so that meant Quince 240, Poplar Park, Walnut Grove, everything this way was our territory. There weren't all that many fire plugs out in all that area. So the first thing I learned to pump was how to draft water out of a pond. I learned that before I learned how to hook up to a fire plug because it was much more beneficial, much more useful. Uh, Chief talk, McCall- Talk about that pump. What, uh, the front end pump on that 123? Yeah, what that about? When you go to engage that pump, when you go to engage that pump, okay? Break your arm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you might want it to be very careful, don't get your face too close down there, because you could break your arm, okay? That thing can kick back on you. Now, I will say that it's, I like the layout of that front. It came in handy one day, we'll quit reminiscing on a lot of this stuff. One Saturday, 
behind Posey's drugstore and all that stuff, they were burning some trash. And behind Posey's, going northbound on Germantown Road, there was no Farmington. There was just pine tree forest and things like that. Well, they were burning some trash and it caught. The wind was 30 miles an hour that day. And it started burning hellacious fire going northeast, basically. And Bob Jones, Bill Jones, excuse me, Bill Jones, one of the older volunteers, he was driving 123 on Peak Mitchell Road. This is the Peak Mitchell, doesn't exist anymore, going northbound off Poplar. Lee Winchester lived down there, Glenn Miller, other people's. And just past that, the road kept on going, then faded away into the woods. And these, the flames were coming across treetop, treetop. And Jimbo and I were on the front with the uh, pre-connect while Bill Jones was driving the pumper down the road. We were spraying the trees as we were going along. So, I mean, we made things happen. And that's, that's, that's what Phil McCall insisted we do, you know, because we had to do what we had to do. Um, he was very strict in keeping up with us. He didn't let us get too far off the hook, so to speak. We uh, had to bring our report card in every six weeks, show it to him that we're doing the right thing and all that. But that was really kind of perfunctory, you know. I mean, you know, he, you know, he was was he paddling your group? Because he paddled the he, group I I ran. He, he bust your ass if you if if you if you gave him reason to, it was going to happen. Okay, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> middle of the seventh grade when I moved to Germantown from a city school to a county school. I got 12 licks from Commodore Ferguson, a couple of coaches, in those few weeks I was actually there. Germantown was a very corporal school, okay? They weren't no calling your parents, can we whip his ass? Uh, but, but anyways, they did it, you know, that's the way it goes. Uh, but Phil McCall ran a tight ship. And when you think you were trying to pull one over on him or get around him on something, you might as well have just been, you know, talking to the wind because things come around. At the tail end of my years, I became a dispatcher for the fire department slash police department, 7071, that little bitty room right there in the old police station. And that's about when they first started hiring those they make first drivers, okay, at night mm -hmm. in Phil's office, okay? Larry Lenati, Scott Nance, uh, Charlie Race. Anyway, uh, and Phil had a Coke machine in there, okay? One of those canned Coke machines. Back then they were a quarter, okay? Well, some of us decided we'd like to have a little beer up in there. And so on the bottom row, we put beer in there, but we put every other can full of rocks. So you had to put a quarter in and get the rocks, and put another quarter in and get the beer. We never thought that Phil would be up there one day when the Coke man came to open it up and check on the Cokes. We didn't was, have when you were on there, did they have the resuscitator hanging on the wall? When I when I came on 75, we had an, an ENJ resuscitator. <laughs> and if you made a medical call, he would do it one of two ways. Chief McCall would come by, grab whatever soul he could find, grab the resuscitator and go make the medical call or you be sure you put it on the fire engine and took the fire engine medical call. <laughs> it just... uh, in that office also, that nighttime switch where the dispatcher could tell the sleeping driver, get up, you're fixing to go somewhere. There's that little klaxon horn that was plugged into the mm -hmm. wall. That was put there on for one person, a guy named Larry Lenati. 
you could throw a hand grenade in there and it wouldn't wake Larry up. So they had to find something that would wake him up and get him out of there and get ready to go fight a fire and drive the pumper. Um, <laughs> uh, the fire station was a place to gravitate to. There was always something going on. You may walk up to the fire station in those days and feel would say, hey, take my car, go down Johnson Road. Miss Smith's husband's in the hospital and her grass is getting a little high and I want you and Bill to go down there and cut the grass, okay? Take care of her yard. And when you went down to do something like that, you, they hadn't invented cell phones, it's just the way it was. If you got down there and her lawnmower in the carport didn't have any gas in it, you know, and you couldn't find any gas, you didn't go back to the fire station and say, Chief, I didn't find no gas. You went and knocked on doors and you borrowed somebody's gas. You got it all done. You took care of it. You never asked a thing about it. That's just the way it was. Uh, again, life lessons, okay? That's what he was teaching. And you didn't ask a whole lot about what was going on. You just did it. Um, Early on, you mentioned Bobby Lanier was, when I came on, Bobby Lanier was our fire chief. Phil McCall was the assistant chief, the paid city employee, the only one paid city employee. Uh, Mr. Howard, Mr. Dickey, uh, I don't know, we have some adults there. But anyway, uh, there were certain people that, uh, that drove. The first, I'd been, I'd been there about three months. The first time I drove to a fire, 123. My girlfriend was bringing me back home and it was snowing. And just as we came by the fire station, because her house went on that way and take me to my house. And as we got by the fire station, 121 was pulling out. Lights and sirens and going on. So I said, I'll see you later. I jumped out of the car. I went in there and there was a house on fire down Poplar Estates under construction on the show boat. And 121 went, Phil was going from his house and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I think Jimbo was on the radio in there and I was in there. And I'm hanging around thinking about what do I need to do? What I got? I ain't got no car. What am I gonna do? And Phil hollered on the radio, "Bring 123 down here." And I said, "I'm the only one here. <laughs> Be happy to come on." <laughs> Those were the words. Come on. So nobody else there, just me. So I took off 123, went down to the corner, turned, headed down Poplar, came down the hill, Poplar Estates, probably about three inches of snow. And as I turned into Poplar Estates, my back end tried to catch my front end, but I straightened it all out, got on down there, and uh, stopped and uh, got to see the fire. Joe Rape was there, it was a mutual aid call, flames were going through, under construction, totally involved. And uh, anyway, it burned up pretty good. Later, I found out that as I was coming down that hill to Poplar Estates, my mom and dad were driving down Poplar, coming at me. And my dad told my mom, Rosa, that's Joey driving a fire truck. <laughs> now, he was an air traffic controller. Not much surprised him, but so anyway, that was the first time I drove a pumper. Okay, and, and how was, old were you? I was just about sixteen. Just about sixteen. Yeah. Um, we we um, that was also my only injury ever at a fire. Because after we fought that fire and it was all over with, we all went back to the fire station, and it was about two o'clock in the morning some embers, and we had to go back, and I stepped on a nail. And Phil had always told us that those boots had steel plates, and it didn't. <laughs> I had a board hanging on my foot, but okay. Uh, so you did what you had to do to get things done. Uh, you, at the same time, you were bonding because everybody was watching everybody's back. 
I don't need to tell you professional firemen here, but when you go into a burning room with your friends, they're your friends, okay? Now, you, you, you may be terrible enemies once you get away and go have a couple of yeah. drinks, you know, but you're friends, and you watch out for each other. And this is something that you, you never forget uh, forever. Um, some of the, uh, Phil, Phil had a way of getting to you, okay? Yeah. You, first of all, I don't want to give the false impression that it only took the boys in the fire department that were good graded people or what have you, okay? He did ride you on the graves. But he would take an orphan, so to speak, a wayward child, and try to get him on the right path. One day, I mean, I have an example. I'm up the station. There's a fire call down Dogwood or whatever. And so I hop in 121 right there by the door. And there's this kid sitting on the right-hand side, and he looked like a hippy-dippy. You know, he had puka beads on and all that sort of stuff. And so Phil stepped out of the door, and he was telling me something. And I said, excuse me, uh, 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 oh, don't worry about it. Take him with you. And that was Ned Cook's son, one of the richest people in this part of the country, that was coming. His dad was trying to get him cleaned up and straightened up and getting back normal. And he put him under Phil's tutelage, and so he was going to hang out the fire station for the weekend. Um, as a true volunteer, I can't tell you the many times that we were at a gathering of other friends, be it a baseball game or something like that, and the fire whistle would go off like when I was a kid, and you'd say, come on, let's go. You No training, you know. Hop on the back of a pumper, yeah, go ahead if you want to. How we never got killed, I'll never understand. How we never got killed. But Phil had a way of making you aware that you're going to get it done. Um, he, he instilled so much confidence, and he did it in such a quiet way that you didn't know you were getting it. And that made you even more pushing to even do more. And if you were looking for a compliment from Phil after something you know, is done, you can keep looking for that, okay? It's, it's not going to happen. No, it would. <laughs> but, but at the same time, he, uh, my, I was at a point in my life, my mom had just remarried, stepdad, I mentioned air traffic controller and everything, and uh, he filled a void in my life that was like another father to me, okay? There was, how many times after a date on Friday or Saturday night, after I dropped my date off, I'd go to my McCall's house and walk in, and he'd be sitting there watching TV with his two telephones and magazines all over the place that his wife never could pick up. Uh, but, uh, you know, just hang out for a while and going back home the rest of the way. Little piece of crap car I had when I started college. Burned valves on it. And uh, he said, oh, don't worry about it. He says, I'll get Smitty out here. We'll figure it out, Durwood Brown. Meantime, take the Falcon out there. He just got in his Mustang. He said, take the Falcon. I drove that son of a bitch for three months before I got my Chevy back again. <laughs> did you ever ride? When did he, when did he get the Ford Torino? Uh, well, after the Mustang. Uh, uh, after the Mustang. So I'm going to say that Torino was about 71, 72. 72. Something. It was Something after like, I came on. You know, that thing had only one speed. 
And uh, there's a guy in, in Germantown, I can't remember, it might have been one of the Arthur's own, the rubber supply. Yeah, manufactured rubber supply. Yeah. Boyd yeah. Arthur and yeah, Andrew Right Arthur. there across the commercial appeal. Yeah. And when the building was on fire, they wanted the owner there, and I know for a fact, <laughs> Phil went and got the owner, and about 12 minutes later, <laughs> they must have flown because he only had one speed, and that was put your foot on the floor. And if you rode with him for the first time, it would scare the daylights out of you. Well, that, that's, that, that was just called getting getting used to it and getting normal. Uh, that Falcon, my parents lived in Germantown Heights on Hayden Road, and when when I had using the Falcon, it had no radio, so I had a transistor radio on the dashboard. So I come, I'm coming in late one night, Saturday night, about midnight, I dropped off my date, and I'm going home, turning into Hayden Road off of Cordova. And uh, as I turned, the radio slid across the dash. And I reached up and grabbed the radio and I heard a bump bump. And I looked up in the windshield and I'm driving across the Waldron's yard. The people lived on the corner of Germantown Heights yard of the month, every month, go to church with a Germantown Methodist. I'm in the Falcon, we're going, I'm going across the yard. <laughs> I'm coming back out on the street. That's about four houses from my parents' house. So I go park on the street and go on in and go to bed. Around 6 a.m., my stepdad opened the door, bedroom door, he says, hey, get up. I said, what? He says, grab some clothes and grab a shovel, meet me out front. Like, what the hell is he talking about? You know, I may have left out that, you know, I didn't totally remember that situation, but uh, anyway, it never dawned on me that, you know, that the tracks would go 50 more feet down the road with the mud to right where the car was. So um, we have, I got a lot of sand and shovels and fixed the Waldron yard. Um, but we, we had life lessons. That's what we had. And we fought fires along the way. And we did some amazing things. Um, Dr. Braun's house, there was a house at the Massey and the railroad tracks, just slightly on to the west, to the north of the railroad tracks back then. And it was a daytime fire, and it was fairly well involved. Phil laid out 121, uh, again, railroad tracks on Massey. Across Poplar and down to the nearest fire plug, which is 800 feet, 900 feet. Had to have the highway patrol, sheriff's department, everybody shutting down the highway. While we fought, that was the nearest plug, wow. was that far away. Another fire the Lichterman fire over at Fair Oaks close to Sweetbriar. Now again, that was all Germantown's territory. It was like a ski lodge in Colorado. And it was, you were there. That, that was just totally in flames. No plugs, okay? We got 122 back in the back, got it into the swimming pool area, leaves 14 feet deep, fighting that. I think John was up there on the balcony trying to get a line into one of the rooms. And somewhere along that way, the state troopers told us there was dynamite in carport. So we backed off and made a foundation out of it. But everybody in the neighborhood was out for that one. But we were drafting, doing what we could do, whatever we could do. Um, Admiral H.M. Beauty Martin, a great World War II warrior, his house on Mestic Road, slightly west, slightly west of where Kirby Parkway cuts in now, his house was on fire one afternoon. It was a pretty good fire, not a really total fire, but a good fire. But he had a bomb shelter behind his house. 
And so half of us, and I say us because it was like us firemen and us neighbors and us friends all there. We were carrying works of art out of the house into the bomb shelter, pieces of furniture. Meanwhile, getting up on the roof, you know, venting and trying to get the fire out and everything else. Everybody was helping. Everybody was pitching in. But without things like film a call, in those days, if you needed something done, if you needed something done, you went to Phil. You go to Phil with anything. You say, look, I need a thermonuclear device that I can transport across three state lines. He'd go, uh, call Billy at this number right here. I I'm serious. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, okay, my, my brother's in jail and he needs an attorney. Uh, my, 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 my sister's in Los Angeles and she fell and broke her leg. Call this guy. He lives right by the airport in Los Angeles. That's the kind of community we had, literally. You know, somebody knew somebody who knew somebody. The smallest little city, the biggest little town there ever was. And uh, that's why you all, and people expected, when we went to Capable Fire Department, when we went to other things like that, you know, we were the big dogs in that size fire department, you know, not the Memphis. Was Edgar McHenry? His Mr. McHenry, he Mr. Was, McHenry. Did he come out with the flags yeah, and stop yeah. traffic? Uh, at the intersection, going north. At the, at the intersection of Poplar and Germantown Road, the northeast side, uh, there's a First Tennessee building there now, but that wasn't it. There was a First National Bank, there was City Cafe, Cecil Yarber's stepdad, Posey's Drugstore, uh, Walker Machine Products, and a grocery store, okay? And Mr. Har the hardware store, Mr. McHenry's hardware store. And when he heard the siren go off, he had two little flags, and he'd walk out there and block the intersection. Fire truck would be coming. He, he, he guessed it was coming because, you know, chances were. It would be one or two cars. One right? or two cars. <laughs> now, we also, April the 4th, 1968. Let me, Mark, let me add something to that yeah. intersection. Uh, 121, the 65 Ford, with a five-speed gas-burning straight pipe engine and when you pull out of station one and cross the tracks probably drop it in third as you're coming around by the baptist church siren we're in but when you top the hill by the south central bell building which wasn't there then but yeah. as you're coming down to the intersection you'd have to downshift and you could literally I lived at the very north end of the Germantown city limits, and I could hear that thing downshifting, and that right there, I mean, over the siren. And uh, yeah. you had to downshift, especially if you're gonna turn east or west on Poplar. And if you, and because you're gonna bounce through the intersection, who's ever on the tailboard may up in the, in the hose bed. But that, that engine being straight pipe like it was, and it stayed that way forever until the shop did something to it, screwed it all up. But um, I got, that was a, 121, there was, a, there was a Germantown policeman that just came to work named Harvey Houston. He'd been there for a couple of months, not very long. I wound up buying his pistol. But anyway, he was, he was a rookie. And anyway, he'd gotten off the shift, 4 to 12, whatever it was, working in. About 12.30, he was still there at the fire station in the Exxon, the Golson's on fire. And so Larry Lenati was the driver in bed that night. He got up, got cranked up. And Harvey said, can I go? He said, yeah, hop on the back, you know? <laughs> so Harvey hopped on the tailboard 121, and he didn't fall off or anything. But as he came down that hill and saw the flames underneath the 
and the, the Exxon station there, uh, when that pumper stopped, he was recorded going a lot of miles an hour away from the fire. That, that was his last night as an employee of the city of Turkey. <laughs> you know, Phil McCall was an innovator. And they did things out here that other departments wouldn't have thought of doing. And, and they did that. One of the things that he did in, prior to 1975, in fact, I believe probably even up to, to 70, this fire department was using pre-connected fire hose, inch and a half pre-connected fire hose. Memphis didn't put a pre-connect on anything until 1974. Yeah, and Bartlett, either, either Carville, everybody had pre-connected yeah, fire hose or a big line. Yeah, because they, yeah. they, had to, they either laid the booster or the big line, and that's great if you got water to back it up. If you don't have water to back it up, you better be conservative with what you got. He had probably as good a handle on the, the fire tech business as anybody. He and Chief Hamilton were close friends. I know he and Chief Jenkins were were close friends. He'd go to the forty ones and drink coffee, and and we would make fires. This is in the seventy five, seventy six. Uh, we'd take all of our young guys. That's when John was young. That's when Alan was young, and I was a, a little younger. And we'd make fires along the city limits, and Memphis would have all these old guys on forty ones and forty fours who were all in their fifties. And Phil would pull up there and he'd tell the Memphis guys who were using mops, they were using mops and wet brooms and whatever whatever they could find, he'd say, y'all just sit and we'll go put the fire out. And he'd put 21s out in the middle of the field, which was geared to go out in the field. It would go out in the field tires and it had slip transmission and rolling pump. And we'd take off in the brush truck and go one side and then two guys with Indian cans or broom the Memphis guys would be sitting over there just watching all these young guys put the fire out. We'd used to do it all the time. But occasionally Memphis would come in and bail us out, but nobody ever said anything on the radio because Memphis would have gotten in trouble. Yeah. And and we never said anything, and we we took care of each other for a long, long time. John, do you have you have similar thoughts, don't you? Yeah. Joe, uh, if you think of anything else, jump yeah, in there. But Okay. Go ahead, John. Uh, you ready for me? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, at age six, uh, uh, I was going to St. Louis Catholic School. One of my classmates was Louis Brandon. His father was an assistant chief on the Germantown Fire Department, one of the, uh, one of the chiefs. He worked with MLG and W along with Bobby Lanier, so that's how they, they knew each other. But... Um, in the age, in uh, at my age, I was fascinated by fire. I was just, you know, a little fire bug. And um, so he told me about this program. He said, you know, when you, Germantown has a high school program. When you turn 16, you can join the fire department. And, you know, right then and there at age six, I knew I wanted to be a Germantown firefighter. So fast forward 10 years. Lewis Brandon and I are in Germantown High, high School at this time, 10th grade, and uh, we were in an algebra class, and it was, you know, it was early, early November, you know, and uh, Lewis turned around and asked me, he says, hey, uh, when, are you, when are you getting on the fire department? And I said, well, I turned 16 in December, so uh, I'll join then. He said, ah, oh, no, come on, come on. So, so Lewis took me to the station, and I'm... I'm standing in that little small office uh, that we had, 
and I'm kind of nervous waiting on Chief McCall and here he comes in. Chief McCall comes in with like an entourage, like, you know, three or four people behind him, you know. And um, he looks at me and I'm standing by his desk and uh, his first words are, what what the hell are you, what the hell are you doing? And I said, uh, I want to join the fire department. And he, he's always, he always retorted with why. And I said, just without hesitation, I said, I want to, I want to serve my community. So he's sitting down at his desk and he's fight, he's uh, uh, going through a file drawer and he's giving me this speech. He says, now let me tell you something. This ain't no Sunday school picnic. This is serious business. I said, yes, sir, yes, sir. And uh, he pulls out an application and he says, now look, you fill this application out and I, I want a note from your parents giving me permission to for you to be on my fire department. I said, yes, sir. So, man, I was so happy. I, I got it and filled it out and uh, brought it back. And it was like the next day uh, when we got out of school, it's like you're saying, Joey, we all just gravitated to the fire department and looking for something to do. You know, we were waiting on a fire or something. And uh, uh, so we were waxing Chief McCall's car. Now at this time, it was he still had the 1967 um, uh, Mustang. And we were waxing it. Chief McCall comes out there, and he says, um, uh, he takes a rag from me, and he says, let me tell you something. You keep it clean, because it'll save your life someday. And you're talking about life lessons. That's a lot of significance, because when you think about it, all the equipment on the fire department is, is very valuable. And plus, if you know your equipment, you, you keep it uh, in working condition, the time you need it, it's going to work and it'll save your life. So, uh, <clears throat> so, you know, about, I think a couple weeks, maybe a week or after I'd been on, um, my mom and dad, we were coming back from church. And now I grew up in Germantown. My parents uh, were the founding members of the Catholic Church, Our Lady of Perpetual Help Church. So we were coming home from the... Uh, 10 o'clock mass that morning and went by the fire station and they, they'd blown the siren. And uh, at that same time, I saw Chief McCall just whip up uh, Southern in his Mustang. So I told my parents, I said, please, please, uh, let's go follow Chief McCall. So we had a, there was a grass fire and it was started by the Boy Scouts. They were camping out behind this Dickey's uh, place on Poplar Pike. And um, they, they, they started a grass fire from cooking breakfast. And then um, the son of a volunteer, uh, Wink Dickey, his dad was Raymond Dickey, one of the volunteer chiefs. Um, he hooked up his tractor and made a circle around the grass and it was pretty well out. But it's kind of uh, embarrassing for the Troop 87 to, to uh, have a grass fire. So um, that, that was my first official fire. And I just, uh, so uh, uh, one night, uh, this was um, this was Wednesday evening. It was the eve before Thanksgiving, 1971, November. I was hanging at the fire station with the driver, uh, Charlie Race. He was a night driver then. 
And uh, I said goodbye to him and walked out the door. I was walking back home because I lived on McVeigh, fairly close to the fire station. And all of a sudden, I heard engine 21 crank up. And you know, you can, you can hear the engine. And I looked and I'd never seen the engine uh, with the lights on at night. And I saw that the, uh, it had a figure eight light Mars called light. Mars light. And that light was just going and I was kind of looking at it. So I ran back in the station and jumped up in the cab with Charlie. And so Charlie said, we have a fire at Fountain Square. And it's just as we pulled out, a train came by. So we had to wait for a few minutes that delayed us to make the fire. So we went down there and granted, I didn't have any training at all. I, I've just been on, I've been to a few fire meetings, but as far as essential firefighting, you know, uh, uh, proficiency, I was lacking. So I knew the turnout gear they kept on top of the engine 21. They had about three, three or four pair of gear. And I knew that I needed to get them off uh, when we got to the fire. So we pull up, it was uh, Poplar Woods Circle West. And I'll never forget, it was like an orange glow in the window in this upstairs apartment. And so I jump out and I'm, I'm trying to get the turnout gear off the uh, engine. And then I heard this words, I heard Chief McCall and these, them saying, lay out, lay out. I said, what in the world? And I heard engine 21 crank up and Charlie was uh, going to the hydrant in the complex there. And I just managed to jump off and, uh, and uh, save myself. And uh, eventually, I, at that fire, I ended up on the roof with uh, Jay Hollingsworth, Boyd Arthur, who was an alderman at the time. And we were, I was helping them with a two and a half inch hose, uh, putting the fire out on the roof. They had the, the fire coming up through the roof. And then Memphis came, raised aerial. We got off and, and everything was uh, uh, over with after that. But I got back to the station, I was so excited. It was my first really big fire. I called home and I was telling my brother, Tim, I said, man, you gotta believe it, man, I made a fire, found square, we were up on the roof. And my dad overhears this and he comes to the station and gets me because he was very safety conscious. He says, son, you haven't had any training. He says, uh, you're gonna get yourself hurt. and. From that day on in my entire career, he would always, my dad would always tell me to stay off the roof. <laughs> so, but uh, that, was, that was really the beginning in November. And then it just progressed. I, I had an opportunity to, to um, go through the first uh, training class of the Shelby County Fire Department. They just had their 50th anniversary this past June. And uh, prior to that time, firefighting in the county was done by about eight different or nine yeah. different departments, and Always. some of them worked really good. Raleigh and Bartlett and Frazier mm -hmm. all ran together, worked with each other great. Yeah. With Capable, Millington, and then down in the south end, Capable yeah. and uh, right Germantown and, and Carville and Forest Hill all kind of ran together. And then they formed the county fire department. That's when Chief Mowry came out. From after retiring yeah. from Memphis to run it, and then John got to get in the 
first class, boy howdy. Yeah, and as I progressed, we had fire meetings, um, first and uh, third Thursday of the month. And man, you know, I, I listened to Chief McCall. He was just, I was just enthralled. I could listen to that man talk forever, you know, and, and I would do anything for him. So um, April 1972, we had an arson fire on Valverde Cove. It was a, a, a student, I went to, he went to school with me at St. Louis, but you know, I, I hadn't seen him in a few years. And um, uh, he broke up with his girlfriend, so he, that's where his girlfriend's house was. And he set it on fire. First, he set the couch on fire in the den, and then he had uh, butane torch bottles. He kind of envisioned that he put throughout the house to make the house go up. But we got there too quick, and um, uh, Chief McCall wanted to, we had a crew around back uh, taking care of the couch, and then Chief McCall wanted us to go through the front door and, and uh, make sure the fire didn't cuff spread any further in the house. So he broke, uh, he said, break out those windows. So we broke out the windows, and then he took off his coat and laid it on the window seal for, to protect it from the glass. And he said, Obi, jump in there and open the front door. And without hesitation, I jumped in there. No, no air pack, you know, no turnouts. I went in there, uh, smoke. Uh, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face and went and unlocked the front door and we were taking the line in and then here comes the guy that started the fire. He was coming uh, out of the hallway. He just <laughs> planted some more propane bottles and Chief McCall told him to get out and then Chief McCall could see that the fire had not advanced so we all came out and I was checking the guy. He, he, was, he was arrested for arson. He got in a little trouble about that but but uh, uh, further, you know, I went through the first training class of the Shelby County Fire Department in, 19, in June of 1972. And then because of that training, I was hired on as a night driver, September 1972, age 16. And I was the only driver at night and then my job was to get the engine to the fire and then the volunteers would show up and, and take care of it. Um, on a few instances, I had policemen helping me lay out the hose, you know. But uh, like Joey was saying, it was, it was like Mayberry. I mean, it was, it was a, a wonderful experience. I mean, for a young, young kid in high school, you know. And then after high school, I graduated in 1974. I just, you know, stayed with it for 35 years. And um, uh, I just rose through the ranks. The city, uh, in the mid-70s, uh, the city really started to grow. It had a, had a, for about 15 years, just a huge, a massive growth per spurt. And I just grew with the fire department. Um, uh, we had, uh, I had one guy in, that was, had, was more senior than me, and uh, you know, by this time I was driving, and then we, uh, we, we set up the shift system in 1977, and he was scheduled to become the life safety inspector, and then uh, because the city, and this is another thing about Chief McCall, when, 
Germantown, probably when Chief McCall took over as chief, he probably had a class 10 insurance rating, which is the worst. You had like zero fire protection. By the time he left, you know, like uh, 20 years later, the city had gone from a class 10 to a class three fire department. Now that was one of the best ratings of any fire department in the, in the state in 1983, in 1982 was when we, we had it. So, um, but- um, John mentioned about, okay. you don't have to go into detail- Sure. About what we talked about the other day, but he, Chief McCall carried a hundred dollar bill <laughs> all the time in his wallet in a clip. And I asked him what that way fell out one day and it, under my feet. And I said, what's this? He said, it's a hundred dollar bill. I said, well, okay. I said, what is it for? He said, it's bail money. Go ahead. Well, I, I can tell you a personal story. Um, I it never got that far, but Chief McCall, <laughs> I don't know what it was. He always list, He always knew what was going on. And he was listening to the radio one night and I, I played on a softball team with Larry Lenati and the Lenati brothers, and um, we were having our annual get-together at a pizza place out in East Memphis, and I was, you know, um, I, got, I got pulled over by one of the strictest police officers in Germantown, Paul Hamlin, <laughs> and uh, for some reason, Chief McCall heard that call go out, and Paul was probably going to take me take me in that night, and Chief McCall came and uh, talked. To our, he he talked to Paul, and they let me go home. And uh, yeah, he. Uh, if Chief McCall said that he was going to handle the problem, yeah, buddy, he was going to handle the problem. Yeah, he may not like the way he handled it, but he was going to handle it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, but as a result, I think of all the lives of all the guys he touched. Yeah. All of us. Yep. All of oh, us. Oh, man. Because yeah. I, I, I'll tell you, um, you know, yeah, I progressed to, to life safety inspector and, and we're helping the city get on track for a class three uh, rating. Joe, you didn't think I ever did inspections. and. I, I you was never worried. did an inspection the whole time I was with you well, for we, a year. We didn't inspect any buildings, but we did go and have fun. Yeah, yeah. We, we made uh, a lot of fire calls. We did a lot of CPR in the middle of front yards of people's sure houses. We saved lives, and we had a good time. But you never made an, one inspection. Probably not, because I was <laughs> I was wearing many hats. Um, I, I was helping uh, in the administrative end. What does the last hat look like? What's that? <laughs> no, go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> you want me to but, tell you tell the story about Chris Burkfield? <laughs> oh, you can't hold that. Hold that. But I, I um, okay. So, um, uh, all right. And this is, you know, 1978, I became the life safety inspector. So, <laughs> But um, but in my defense, Joe, there's only like four commercial buildings in the <laughs> true. At the time. We had a Kmart, so and the, they gave him a, a, a what it was a Robin's Egg Blue um, old squad car is his is his is my inspecting inspector's car. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and, and that was another thing. Okay, we had very little back in those days. The uh, the public doesn't understand what little we had as far as resources, equipment, manpower. Budget. 
at budget. Uh, and uh, but Chief McCall, he, he made it all work. He made. You, you know how he did it. He would have us. We'd pull up to a fire, and it'd be a nothing fire. You could get it with the booster line in the attic on Wilderness Cove, and he made me lay out. Jay Hollingsworth and Scott Shelby, I rode the tailboard down there, and he said, lay out. We drove all the way. We laid 500 feet of hose all the way down to Idlewood Cove. There was a plug sitting in front of the 75 pumper on Wilderness. Jim Selberg was there at it. I asked him afterwards. There's only about five of us there. I said, why did we do that? Life lesson. He says, Joe, he says, if the citizens see us using the equipment and using it right, he says, when I go before the council and I ask for two custom fire engines, they're going to give me the two custom fire engines. He did it in 75 and he did it in 1980. Got two of them. What small town yeah. can do that? Actually, and a life lesson for me was... Okay, I get that, and and I was fine with it. I wasn't fine with picking up 700 feet of hose <laughs> for, for four of us people. We even got, gathered up a couple of civilians that felt sorry for us to help us. With. A little cardio. But it was a life lesson. Alan, you got you, you should have great stories because you uh, were a kid on here too. Go ahead, well, Chief Jones. Actually, he went over to ask for one, and it was such a great price, they gave him two. And the same thing happened in 1980. And I'll give you another story about the 75 in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in a minute. And uh, But as John said, and it goes with Joey as well, Chief McCall was a very progressive chief. He was a visionary. He was really... Honestly, before his time, he uh, literally, back when everybody else is just worrying about trying to get a fire truck on the scene and put out a house fire, he was thinking ahead, going, how are we going to handle emergency calls? Do we need to put a big fire truck on emergency call? Remember, he took that Ford pickup truck and put that topper on the back of it. We had EMS equipment in there, some light extrication. And when an EMS call would come in, emergency call, he'd send the pickup truck instead of sending the fire engine. So he was always just thinking ahead. But it, me thinking back about why I wanted to be a part of the Germantown Fire Department was walked in, he scared the living crap out of me when I first met him. And I was like six, seven. They, my nickname was Basketball. I don't know where that came from either. Uh, but I said, I want to be a part of the team because I played football and basketball and, you know, and I always knew I was just a team guy. And I reckon he bought it because I really just wanted to get out of school when the calls come in, but I don't think that would have worked. So, like you said, he he was just so instrumental uh, in putting the fear of God in you that you are afraid to screw up because if you did, uh, he had that four-foot paddle and the man knew how to use it. So... I'm surprised you didn't get tennis elbow swinging that paddle. Uh, yeah, I don't know. He, he was sort of a, you know, a skinny guy. I don't know where he got the energy, but <laughs> he, was, he was like a golf club. He must have played golf. But uh, another thing, talking about turning out of school, normally when 121 would leave the station and we, John Winchester or Stockstead or one of the other guys who was night drivers, you know, we would get to the fire station. Yes, we'd get on 123. But we'd also get the aerial truck. We had that, what year was that thing? 56 or something? 54, 56. 54, 56. Bought from Monroe, Wisconsin. Yeah, it was a Peter Persh open cab, 75-foot aerial ladder. 
that we used to repel off of till we told us to quit doing it. Thing would fly. Yeah. But at the time, it had a Waukesha 12-cylinder engine in it and an unsynchronized transmission, which means you got to push the clutch in, put it in gear, take off, push the clutch in, put it in neutral, let the clutch out, push it back in to drop it in second gear. Now, this thing ran out of the, I say the backside or the technically the west side of uh, Station 1 in Germantown Road at the time. It was only two lanes, and you had to go out so far to turn right because this thing had a turning radius like, like I'm at a bus, and uh, to get the rear ladder out the door, it would have hit the door, the door frame. So you pull out, well, across the street, and just a little bit north was a telephone pole. And as you pulled out, turning hard, because it didn't have power steering either, and you're double clutching this thing to make the turn, you know, you lose the telephone pole and pray. I don't know how we never hit that pole. Or maybe we did, we just didn't tell anybody. But uh, that thing was, but we, we would take the aerial truck and we would take the 123 and, and get and get to the fire and, uh, and, and, and do a lot of things that, that you would never imagine today. I mean, 16, 17 years old, you know, on your hands and knees with a canvas turnout coat on and a plastic helmet and pull-up boots, you know, fighting fire inside a house. And like Joey had mentioned exactly, back then during the daytime, everybody was in Memphis working. There was three full-time guys, Chief Smith, who was a retired district chief for Memphis Fire, and Chief McCall, and that was it. And if a fire came in, we were basically the backup. And uh, we did a lot of things back then that nobody do, would- Do you remember that, that Chief went and got, you got Charlie Smith, but he also got Udell Bergen, and Udell Bergen was on the A shift, and Jack DeLashman was on the B shift. He brought these retired Memphis captains in to try and give us a little seasoning and a little training, and these guys were characters. Oh my gosh. Here they are in their 60s, dealing with all these young people who are like in their early 20s, you know. Uh, they helped us, I think they did. They, yeah. That Back uh, when we were building building the shifts, I think we went to shift duty in 77. And it was their wisdom and their life experiences. And the, the what was the, uh, Odell Bergen, right? You know, it was a shift. Yeah, well, I was driving for him one day and we were making a call to east, the west side of town, and we we're going up Poplar Avenue, coming up on uh, uh, Miller Farms, or right coming up the hill. And it was nighttime, and he was sitting over there and had his feet up on the dash. And you know, and the purse, seventy-five purse, didn't have a lot of leg room anyway. Well, and he was this, a little guy. Though. He was a little guy, <laughs> and I topped that hill, and there was a lady, I could say a white-haired little old lady, going about twenty-eight miles an hour, and I'm doing like sixty. And I lock it up and literally had to pull the emergency brake to keep from putting her into Mars. Of course, he goes butt first to the floorboard. So he's sitting there with his feet up on the dash, his head against the back of the seat, stuck, you know, as I'm skidding the pumper to keep from hitting her. And she finally just mer merges to the right at 18 miles an hour. And uh, then I get off the brakes and we go on to make the scene. The whole time he's over there stuck, yelling at me to stop and get him out. There was another guy named Steve Glankler 
and Steve was a unique individual, but uh, he would always sit in the jump seat looking through the sliding window. He would never sit in a seat looking backwards like he's supposed to. Of course, when I slammed on the brakes, he ate that sliding window really well and taught him a lesson to keep his butt in a seat and a seat belt. But uh, and we made the scene, it ended up not being anything, but I had to get out and go open the, the uh, lieutenant's door and drag Udell out and get him on the ground. And it was just, it was, it was, it was just, uh, it was an experience to never forget. But um, another little incident that happened, you know, Chief McCall, he knew how to butter those aldermen. The man yeah. was an artist at knowing how to work administration, work the city administrator. He had Boyd Author in the palm of his hand. Nobody ever knew it. And Boyd Author was a, well, he was a tough gun. And Hogerson too, he was a real piece of work. But, uh, but we, uh, we, got, we got through it. But um, this one, uh, one time he said, we're gonna, they were, they were building Farmington Avenue where we were gonna build our central fire station. And they were taking trees down, and Chief McCall wanted us high school guys to get out there and cut up a bunch of trees and, uh, and for firewood for some aldermen. So we're out there, it's like 38 degrees, we're freezing our butt off. Well, we run out of gas for the saw, so me and Ray Costa, and I can't remember who the other guy was, we climb in Chief McCall's Grand Torino. Yeah, I said bucket seats with radios. I mean, he had Ray, he could talk to Mars with that thing. But, uh, and I think Ray was sitting on the radios. So we're going to station one to get more fuel and we are complaining. Well, all this time, unbeknownst, Ray had his leg against the mic of the radio. And we're going, I can't believe he's got us out here doing this. We're freezing our butt off, you know, to, you know, keep these oh, aldermen happy. And, that's you another, know, and, in this business, that's another life lesson. Yeah, yeah. Watch yeah. where the microphone is. Watch where the mic is. is. So, you yeah. know, we're going, I can't believe a cheaper yeah. call's got us out here. This is stupid. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> so, anyway, we cross the railroad tracks to turn into Station 1, and there's like four people out there waving at us and stuff, and we're going, what the hell they want? And I pull up, and he says, you're the mic. And I looked down, I saw his leg on it, click. And I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I said, where is he? Don't come out, Chief McCall. He's in the office. He's waiting for you. Oh, that was a grueling, grueling uh, meeting that I had with him after that. But that was another life experience. Be careful what you say on the radio. It can come back to bite you. But um, another... I was a high school night driver like John. Uh, you know, you had a weekday driver and then you had the weekend driver. And uh, you literally, I made a fire off of, I want to say Pikewood or somewhere one night. Fire's blowing out of the gable, attic fire. No, it's a Friday night. And really to get anybody to show up on a Friday or Saturday night was really scratching. And nobody was there. So, hey, no big deal. I dropped the skid load, dropped the ladders, dropped the SCBA. Nobody's there yet. Okay, jump in the pumper, I'll lay out, get to the plug, nobody. Get on the plug, charge the skid load, nobody. Get up there, I'm thinking, please God. Of course, Chief McCall showed up. Of course, he wasn't a lot of help, but he, <laughs> he was... He was yelling at me. He goes, "We need to get up there and get in." I said, "Okay, we well, uh, you know, the pumper's in there." Wah! 
you know, and and uh, finally a couple people started to show up, you know, and they're putting the gear on. But I mean, I was thinking I'm going to be the only one here the whole entire night. But uh, You're that not was the first person that's taken. Richard William did took the bumper by himself to a fire, and Bob Carter met him at the fire, and they tied the skid load to a tree yeah. and he laid out himself and and yeah. then raced back got the pump set up raced back to got yeah. one line car same, uh, same just cool. about the same yeah, thing and when i was a but when i was a high school volunteer i mean i i i breathed it i would i would literally get the turnouts off the top at 121 and make a backpack out of it and ride around town on my bicycle with these things you know everybody used to get mad at me about doing it but uh, but if I was like, I lived at Miller Farms in Neshoba, and if I heard sirens, I started riding my 10-speed to the fire station. And uh, and to get there, and, I, and then it ended up it was a police car, and I just rode for nothing. But but uh, but still, I just I just loved it. It was it just instilled so much in me uh, doing that. And talking about those engines, back then you couldn't get Coors beer east of the Mississippi River. So Chief McCall and his way of working his his assets and his resources we were in canosa wisconsin getting one of those 75 pumpers well of course i couldn't go to the bar with bob norman and kirk mosley and i had to stay in a hotel room with with a bear's mangy looking dalmatian dog and uh <clears throat> i'm like we're on like the third or fourth floor now the wind is open winds blowing it feels great they got me a few beers they were being nice to me well, that dog heard something and jumped, and I wasn't realizing he was about halfway out the window when I got a hold of his leash because I just took him out to do his thing and caught him and drug him back. I mean, <laughs> I think he was hanging out the window at one point, but I got him back in the in the hotel room, and then of course Bear shows up, and I'm over there like hyperventilating, you know, and he's <laughs> like, "What's what's wrong?" And I said, "You're not going to believe it." So we get in the first pumper and we're leaving. The, Kenosha, Wisconsin plant, and uh, Kirk goes, the interstate's not this way. I said, I don't know where Chief McCall's going. Well, we went to the Coors Brewing plant and, uh, and loaded several cases of Coors beer in the hose bed and uh, transported it back to Memphis, unbeknownst to anybody back then. Yeah, another uh, good beer story for you, too, that goes along there. The first fire I ever called in in my life, maybe the only fire, I'd stopped at McLemore's one night after everything, and I, when I got out of my car, I looked behind me in Patterson's Restaurant, which was on Poplar there on the north side of, of right Poplar there, well, flames were coming out of the roof. So I went to the payphone, called 754-1414, told them there's a fire. Anyway, it, it came on down there. All of us started fighting. In Patterson's Restaurant back then, you, you walked in the front door and uh, there were tables and stuff this way. And then you went a couple of steps down into a little annex, okay? And there were some coolers down that way, okay? Well, Charlie Race, Jay Hollingsworth, unnamed, unnamed, unnamed. Anyway, it's burning pretty good. And we get down in that annex. We got turnout gear. We're doing good now. We got coke, you know. So we're, we're in there. We're fighting it, you know. It's getting it good. And we saved the building. Uh, but there was beer in the cooler. And so we kept getting in the cooler and loading up two or three cans here, two or three cans there. And then we'd mow around a while, you know, and then somebody carried it out, you know. Well, we, <clears throat> we had enough beer for probably two weeks worth of parties out of the Patterson's restaurant. 
The other thing about Patterson's was, so Phil's out front with Mr. Patterson, and Mr. Patterson's got a bottle of Jack Daniels on the hood of his car, and he's got a buttermilk. And I thought, what in the hell is he doing, you know? And I learned later on that some people have stomach issues, but they like to drink, and they would, you know, made me sick just to think about it, okay? But you know, Phil would not drink in town. He never did. Nope. Like when we go to fire school, yep. he and the fire chief from Union City would go, they would room together, and they'd go to the liquor store, and they'd get a bottle of something mm -hmm. and go to bed. And then, of course, myself and John and the rest of us had the high school boys locked in mm -hmm. the rooms next door, and we let them drink, and everybody kept their mouths shut. Yep. But we 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 let we allowed them to to have alcohol. If you're taking yeah. a 16 year old kid in a burning house <laughs> and trusting them to drive fire engines, you can trust them to drink. But we, I slept well, against well, one door. Was, I, looking back at the times we were in, so to speak, in my days and into your days too, but definitely my days. You know, by the time you were 18, there's a good chance you had a rifle in Southeast Asia, and you can't. Go die for your country. You can't drink. They beer, knew where you know? they stood, and everybody that we had wanted to be there, and would have died if. And you know what? Uh, when John and I got the, his program in '79, and when these kids would come in on report card day, mm -hmm. you know, you get he'd put a he'd put two licks on you if you had an F and one if you had a D. If he couldn't correct you by the south end of your butt, he would suspend you. Mm -hmm. And you suspend one of these kids for a month. And they can't come to the fire station, or they can't respond out of school, or they can't hang mm -hmm. around with their friends for a month. You can fix anything, buddy. Yep, that's it. Talk, talking about an ac possible accident, we were at the fire station one Saturday. Call came in down past Dead Man's Curve on Dogwood. I think it was Edmund's house. Anyway, kitchen fire or something like that. Phil drove 123. I got in the Bronco. Jimbo was behind on the tank of the Bronco. Buzz Wynn was, was in the back with him. I think Bill Fay was up front with me. Anyway, make a long story short, Phil 123, so I'm coming into the curb driving the Bronco, and as I come through, all of a sudden the Bronco goes up on two wheels as I'm coming halfway through the curb. The left wheels are coming up in the air. I got it back down just in time to come out the other side and turn in the Edmonds driveway. And Phil saw the whole thing in the rearview mirrors. And we pulled up in the drive. It was a false alarm food on the stove. As we pulled up behind the pumper. I just sat there, Buzz didn't say anything, Jimbo didn't say anything. And uh, when it was all over with, I said, well, I guess we gotta go back now. Buzz says, I'll walk. <laughs> but that damn thing almost flipped over in the curve. Well, you know, you're talking about rolling hose. When you're six foot eight, and we backed in, we had, had that leather or, or canvas jacketed brass butted two and a half hose. A lot of it we got from Memphis. And the three inch stuff that was, you know, on the Mac and and uh you know, and I was out there going, This is killing me, you know. So I'd sort of roll it real sloppy looking and they yell at me, Basketball, you you can't roll a hose worth a darn. You just wash the fire truck. And all the other guys look at me go, Oh, you're a dummy, you you don't know what you're doing and I'm going, Yeah, who's standing here with a brush in his hand and who's over there blowing out your lower back? carrying hose and putting it in the back of the pickup truck. So that was one of the things I learned. And now my mother passed away in July, and in her eulogy, I uh, talked about a Fountain Square fire. There are 
just bear with me. My mother signed my note. My dad traveled a lot. She was a corporate housewife and hey, be on the fire department. Well, she thought, you know, we get there, being high school volunteers, we're doing Gatorade and, you know, and rolling up hose and we're just washing fire trucks and little did she know. And, uh, and she would take me, I'd hear Howard Thompson or Jelly got me a Plectron and I had it at my house. It was, it was hard to get those things back then. Uh, and it would go off and I would chase her down. Mom, 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 take me to fire station or take me to the fire. And she would, you know, in her gown and bedroom shoes, be driving me to the fire and drop me off. And then I'd come get me at fire station later. Well, this particular night went to Fountain Square. It was on fire. It was cold. I got out, ran up. Chief McCall said, Hope, can you go to my house and get my heavier coat? And she said, okay. So she drives over there and gets it from his wife and brings it back. And when she gets back, she notices that I'm up on the roof of Fountain Square Apartments or trench cutting or something. And smoke is barreling out everywhere, fire blowing out of one side of the, of the apartment building. She said she gets in the car and goes home. And from that day forward, she said, I drop you off and I leave. She said, I had no idea you guys were doing that kind of stuff. She probably yelled at Chief McCall about that a little bit too. But, uh, and then Riverdale, on Riverdale, between Popper and Popper Pike, we had a house fire one day and it was high school. We got there, it was hot. Chief McCall was, you know, barking at everybody. We were, man, we had to lay hose all over the place. It, we dumped, it was a big antebellum home. And this That's poor a lady you said, just posted on huh? Facebook, just on Facebook yesterday, day before. Yeah. And uh, this lady had this like 150 year old chest that they had drug out of the living room and got it out the window and sat it down next to the house. And she telling she call, I've got to get that chest. It's an heirloom. He's going, we're going to take care of it, ma'am. There, she's looking at it. Well, about that time, somebody, I think it was him and somebody else. Yes, second. who got that thing out of there? Me, me and John Winchester. Yeah, but. That shiffle robe weighed 600 pounds. But there was something that got dropped on it. Well, there is, because <laughs> we were too tired to move it to the tree. John is up there as we're overhauling. He decides to push the gable of the house over and crush it. Yeah, that's right. She's yeah. standing there. She sees her hair, Just here hair loop right there. And then all of a sudden, boom, <laughs> and wipes the thing out. And, uh, and all I saw, she's, Chief McCall's face just went like, you know, blood red. And he's, he's looking. He's looking up there, and I, it was like a priceless picture. I, I was on Memphis. I hadn't gotten on Germantown at the time. And Jim Selberg and I were up on, all the roof is gone. We'd burnt the roof off. That was an arson fire. That, was that, fire, was, that was a yeah. fire was on mm -hmm. fire from the February basement 1979. And I was getting ready to say something, because back in the day, I had a little bit of an attitude. And, and Jim grabbed me and said, don't worry about it. Just forget it. You know, We've been there since 7 o'clock in the morning. But there was thanks, thanks, John, for crushing yeah. the shipper up. <laughs> there was there was an incident though that mm, there was an incident that Chief McCall had to really really hold us together on, and it was a Susie Gossip car fire. Uh, one night there was a, a rear end collision at Ashmont and Poplar. And we responded in a pickup truck and hit car on fire. And apparently, once they got there, realized there was a body inside it. And they told me stay at the pickup truck. Of course, you know me, I'll stay anywhere. And went up there. We had to remove her. Didn't know at the time it was her. And actually, her father was the record company that came to get the vehicle. He didn't know it was her either. 
uh, until after they identified it and you know ran the tag and all that stuff. Uh, and that really, really took the department at heart because she had dated one of the guys, Richard Pulliam, on the job, and and uh, and it it just it was a very, very hard and tough time for a small department. And um, it wasn't for his strength and his wisdom and his words. You know, I don't know if a lot of us would have stayed around. Um, I had, um, I remember one night, I had, he instilled me to go to EMT school and become a paramedic. We had a, like Mike Stockstead was a paramedic and it was 1982. This was right before he had passed away. And he came by the station and said, hey, grab your gear. I need to take you somewhere. Okay. And uh, so I get the stuff, and we go to Boyd Author's house. He was a, like a mayor back then, or and uh, and uh, he was having some chest pain. And we, you know, I ran a strip, checked him out, said, "Yeah, you're you're you need to go you need to go to the ER." He ended up getting bypass surgery or something, but but uh, came back to station, and you know, I always felt like I was trying to. I felt like I had his respect, but I never really knew. He wasn't one to give you a lot of compliments. It was, it was, you know, he, if it, I reckon if he wasn't yelling at you, that was a compliment. But if, and, if you got the look too, yeah, you know, when you got the look, yeah, yeah. That. And uh, but I came back and we were getting out of the car. I was getting out of the car, and he said, just looked at me, and said, "Thank you, friend." And that right there knew. You know, he was. Uh, no, I had him. Germantown was the first fire department when when Memphis went to EMT. Germantown went to EMT. John, Turkey, who else? Bob, Bob Norman. Bob Norman. Yeah. Uh, we had Nomex turnout gear before Memphis had Nomex turnout gear. The red coats were Nomex that the, the EMT group had. When Memphis got hearse tools, the ladies' garden club out here bought us a hearse tool. When Memphis went to Thumpers uh, for Hart, one of the groups out here bought us that. So every time something innovative came along, he was on top of it. Cities like Cairoville and Millington and Arlington, 10 years went by before they ever had an EMT. Cairoville's the last fire department in the county to have an EMS system. We, we, we used to go to Cairoville on a regular basis. But you and, know, really a summary about as John said, today, Germantown Fire Department, I think and feel is one of the most progressive departments in the, in the state. You know, Jeff Beeman retired as fire chief in Gallatin and he tells me about where they are. They're not even got EMS on engine companies. And thinking about where we were doing that, you know, long before anybody else. And as he said, we hit that class three, and uh, of course we had a little finagling to make that happen. Yeah, we did. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but the, but the, but us being an ISO class one department today is because of what he did in his time to push us to that point to gravitate up to that three and be able to make it to a one. If he didn't do what he did and the way he managed us and grew us as adults and gave us that maturity. We were, we, 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 we were fortunate. We don't know how fortunate we yeah. really were. You know, you know, we, we have kids in this program who've gone to prison if it hadn't been filmed. Yeah. He was, he's the reason why we're where we are today. 
while he rolled out of his car and looked at a scene that was going on, analyzing quickly what needs to be going on, his mind was going further than that. His mind was going, what can we do next that would be smoother in this type of issue we're dealing with? And he, that, that was something that was a unique gift. And uh, it's, uh, I think everybody who was ever around him learned that trait to somewhat a degree is that don't just accept things the way they are. Look for how can I improve just a little bit on this and a little bit on that. And I, I'm serious when I've told people, I said, hey, it was life lessons and we fought, we fought some fires along the way. That is the perfect way to end this. I appreciate y'all. We could, we could talk for days. We've been, three of us here have been in a lot of shenanigans together and we could. There's so more, but that could be. We will, we, will, we will end this. Well, how fun was that? Just hearing the old stories, how everything got started, that was a wonderful time. Joe, I appreciate you putting all that together. I did not have the honor or pleasure of meeting Chief McCall, but as you can tell by their stories and by the inflection of their voice, he meant an awful lot to them and to all of those people that came through, all the men and women that came through, the Germantown Fire Department and the city in general. It seems like he was such a wonderful person, and we want to lovingly and respectfully dedicate this episode to him and to his memory and uh, we will see you next time thanks for listening